Again, if you take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 1 and stand with me as I read for you our text, Romans 1, verses 8 through 15, be blessed by the hearing of God's word. The Apostle Paul, writing to believers in the church at Rome, says, beginning in verse 8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for, all, for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. Verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, that I, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So ends the reading of God's word. May we be blessed as we study it together. You may be seated. Again, we find ourselves coming and considering this second half of Paul's introducing himself to these believers at Rome. By way of reminder, we've already been introduced uh, uh, to the essence of the gospel, uh, may I remind you of that, in verses 1 through 7. And here in verses 8 through 15 is, in many ways, Paul introducing himself. He is telling these believers what is important to him. And I find that fascinating. The first thing out of the gate after saying, I'm here to talk to you about the gospel, now let me tell you about what is important to me, what makes me as we said last week, what makes Paul tick? What makes Paul motivated to preach the gospel? The Holy Spirit of God is giving us insight into the heart and soul of this particular man of God. Paul is doing this to show the Roman believers who he is, but we get a glimpse. We have this benefit of seeing what motivated Paul, and so in doing, we have the opportunity to see uh, follow him as our example. His goals are biblical. His goals are honorable. His goals are glorifying to the Lord Jesus Christ. His goals are to help advance the gospel, the good news concerning the person and work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners. Therefore, we do well to study and then imitate this man's faith. As so we consider what are the things that Paul identifies in himself that makes him tick, that motivates him, I would have you ask yourself some questions. And I already introduced these questions to you last week, but what is it that makes you tick? What is it that motivates you when you get up in the morning? What are the first things that come to your mind? What is it? Is it that first cup of coffee? Is it breakfast? Is it because a pet wants you to get up and take him for a walk? What is it that motivates you? Well, 
we would also then need to ask this question. How well are my motivations aligned with the will of God? The things that drive you in any given day, if you were to write them out and make a list of five or six or ten things that motivate you, would you be able to go to the scriptures and say, yes, that's what God has called me to do? That's a great self-examination. Let me remind you that what Paul offers us here is his own heart. And it's not an exhaustive list. I think we could go to other passages and find other things that, that motivated Paul. But these are enough things for us to consider and ask ourselves, does this describe my heart? Does this, does this motivate me? And as our outline shows, we're going to see at least four things that the believer is to be motivi motivated by praise. He is to be motivated by prayer. He is to be motivated by having a plan. And he's to be motivated by a passion. Now, last week, just by way of reminder, we looked at the first one. I kind of camped out on this. We noted that the believer is a person of praise, and Paul says that in verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the world. This is the very th first thing Paul wants to convey to his readers about what motivates him, and we saw that. What motivates him? He wants to praise God. He wants to be thankful to God for the work that God does in the life of other believers. And we challenged ourselves, does that, is that one of the first things we desire to be known about us? Is that what really motivates us? I can stand up here and, and uh, oh, what a privilege, by the way, I have to say, to, to lead music from the pulpit. Because I get to do something that I don't normally do. And this is free. I'm not going to charge you for this little bit. But... Uh, when I'm playing at the keyboard, I have so many things on my mind. Am I playing the right notes? Am I singing the right words? If I look up at, and look at anybody, I'll forget what's on the music and I'll forget the words. So I just kind of stay focused on that. This morning I got to lead the music and I can see the words up there. And I get to see all your lovely faces. And I can see some of you, and I say some of you, I don't mean to, to say that, that anybody is uh, uh, doing, doing anything wrong, but some of you, I can just tell, you are singing with all you have in your spirit to the Lord. And that was such a privilege. You were being a people of praise. And that's what Paul starts off with. You ever wonder why we start off with singing this big praise song? Because we're mimicking, we're imitating even what Paul has said. And we have other people that would say that too. We can go to the Psalms. And apart from our dark psalm from this morning, uh, so many of the Psalms begin with what? A word of praise. It starts off with acknowledging who God is and what God has done whether it be for David or what God has done for the people of Israel, what God has done for those who follow him. And isn't that what we see Paul doing? I praise my God. I give thanks to God for each and every one of you who are worshiping Jesus Christ in Rome. Paul is delighted that these believers, he says in verse 1, or verse 8 of our text, the first verse of our text, he says, I'm so delighted that people are talking about your faith, that you are living your faith out. The gospel is being lived out. 
You, you want to know in this dark time in which we find ourselves, when we see the world unraveling, when we see woe to those who call evil good and good evil, and we have uh, administration in, in Washington that is promoting evil, and we wonder what are we supposed to do about it? Are we supposed to be politically active? I, I'm not here to judge that. I do know this. The church is not to be silent about preaching the gospel. We preach the truth. And we are to be thanking God for when truth is going forth and when the church, whether it be our little local expression or the church as it's trying to, to live out the gospel in this present darkness, we should be giving thanks to God that he never has given up on his church, that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, that if we would be faithful right here and we would proclaim the gospel and we would live it out, then we would be known as those who what? That we can say, your faith is being proclaimed throughout all of northwest Arkansas. We'll start there. We'll see if we can get it to go further, but we'll start there. And that's what Paul is doing. If we were to assess Hope Community Bible Church and what it's known for, would the outside church identify us as a people of praise? And the only way that's going to happen is if we as individuals do what? Thank our God through Jesus Christ for all of us, for what he's doing in each and every one of our lives. And that's how Paul begins. And that's a little bit of a review. And now let's get to the new stuff, because I like to get to the new stuff. And this next attribute that reveals to us what made Paul tick, what motivated him, what ought to be that which motivates us. And that's our second point. The believer is to be a person of prayer. The believer is to be a person of prayer. Verses 9 and 10. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making requests, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. You know, Paul's praise, Paul's thankfulness for the believers at Rome is not incidental. It's not haphazard. It's not, oh yeah, I was, I've been reminded of that and so I should give thanks to God. Do you ever do that? You're like, you, you're in a group of people and other believers and somebody says, oh, I'm, I want to thank God for this particular thing. You're like, oh yeah, I should be thankful for that too. That's not Paul. He's not being stimulated, motivated that way. He was intentional in praying for these people and he confirms the earnestness of his praise to God and he says, here's how you know I'm praising God for you all because I'm praying to God for you all. And that's essentially what we have. And he, he, he confirms this uh, as we see uh, beginning here in our text. We see Paul's confirmation. He says, and if you read the Greek text, it reads different in the English because we read for God. And then we have this parenthetical thought, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son. We'll talk about that in just a moment. The sentence is in the Greek for God. What do you think it is? Is my witness. He wants to call upon God for these Romans say, I want you to know I'm taking this case before God. He wants to confirm to the believers the depth 
of his praise, the depth of his gratitude for them, as well as his own deep affection for them. And he calls upon God as his witness. And now it's not as though the Romans needed to call God in. Hey, God, is this true? Can you tell us if this is really true? It's not as though they would have doubted his gratitude or his prayers. But Paul yet places himself under an oath. He goes before the king of heaven. He stands before the, the Romans, as it were, and now God promising them that this is his practice concerning them. In the second half of verse 9, Paul reveals that he prays for these believers unceasingly. He prays for them unceasingly. We're familiar with that word, at least in what it means. Paul was familiar in living out that word. The word unceasingly means constantly. And not only did he constantly pray for them, he says, I make mention of you how often? Always. Why does he double up on this? We say double down. I want you to know for certain I absolutely pray for you. I never stop praying for you. I always pray for you. The idea is that Paul was at all times praying for these believers whom he had not even met. Now that blows my mind. Because Paul is saying Throughout my day, throughout my life, I'm constantly remembering a group of people. I have not seen you face to face. I don't know what you look like, but I'm praying for you. And it made me stop to think about this application. If Paul was praying so fervently, unceasingly, and always for people he did not know, how much should we be praying for those whom we do know? And you have a group of people right here who I can make this promise to you. I, can't, I don't know a lot of things. I'm not a prophet. I know each and every one of the people in this room need your prayers. We need to pray for one another. And here Paul says, I do this for you believers at Rome. And again, I'm asking you this morning, Will you take up that call? And I know so many of you do. So grateful for those of you that have your running prayer lists and you pray for the people at Hope and even beyond, beyond that. But excel still more. And some of us need to start right now. I love how well one preacher summed it up, in, summed up verses 8 and 9 about this, these believers in Rome for which Paul was praying. He says, Paul never took them off his prayer list. You've ever had a prayer list? Prayer list can be a benefit and sometimes a curse because if you start writing everything down, then you start forgetting what was way before and you have to keep reviewing it. Paul never took these believers off his prayer list, always praying for them. Remember that Paul was not praying for these believers, again, because they, he knew them or they didn't even pray for them because they were his converts. I mean, that would make sense, right? He, he saw some of them saved under his ministry somewhere else and he sent them to Rome. That's not what's taking place here. He prays for them for one reason and one reason only that I can discern from the text. There's only one reason why Paul prays for these people. They are his brothers and sisters in Christ. That's all it takes. You don't need anything more than that to pray for other believers. Just know that if they are blood-bought Christians, they deserve your prayers. The point is that Paul prayed for them 
Paul knew that even though the faith of that church in Rome had been recognized throughout the Roman Empire, they still needed prayer. And what a challenge for us that we must not only pray for those who have obvious spiritual needs. And don't we spend our time on that? We gather together in our times and like, what can you pray for? And we'll say, well, you know, I've been feeling sick and -and so-and-so has this financial issue. And this person's going to the doctor. And we can begin to, to consider all of these different needs, some of them spiritual relationship issues, the salvation of someone that you've been praying for. Beloved, we must not only be committed to pray for those who need obvious spiritual help, but we need to be praying for those who are doing well. We need to be praying. We see God, somebody, God working through somebody, God working through the church, and we should be saying, let's keep pushing them. You know, one of my uh, favorite things about watching football occasionally, I don't watch much football, but it always amazes me sometimes when they'll, they'll have the running back or the quarterback do the quarterback sneak, and they've got these big guys behind them, and the, and the play is still going, and what are the guys in the back doing? The, the guy's squashed with the ball between all these big bodies, and there's big bodies in the back doing what? They keep pushing. The whistle blows, and what are they doing? They keep pushing. They're pushing them forward. That is what we should be doing as believers. Now, we keep pushing. Those who are already moving forward, we push them more forward. Those who are on the ground, we pull them up. But we constantly pray for one another, whether in uh, their difficulties or in their triumphs. We must be committed to praying for those who are doing well, asking the Lord to enable them to continue in God's blessing, to continue under God's grace, to continue to be obedient. Because how quickly can a testimony turn? That in one moment, and I think all of us might testify to this, that one moment you're walking with God and you're like, there's nothing that's separating me from my walk with God. And then the next moment you find yourself so steeped in sin, you're like, What happened? Part of it is your prayer life. Part of it is we need to pray for one another. Paul was praying for them. But then this got me wondering as I'm reading the text, what did Paul pray for these believers? I mean, surely we should know something about what Paul was praying for these particular believers at Rome. And as a pastor, that's what I wanted to know. What's the great apostle Paul praying for these believers in Rome? And so then I scour the text here and I'm like, he doesn't tell me much. Thanks, Paul. While we do not know all of the specifics, there is something that he prays for, and and some of you are noticing that, but he doesn't give us a lot of specifics about what he's praying for these believers in Rome. But I think it would do us well to consider just for a moment that Paul did pray specifically for churches. And there would be no reason to doubt that when he says, I've been praying for you unceasingly and I make mention of you always, that these would be some of the things that he would have included in his prayers. And so I'd have you jot these down and go back and look at them a little bit later on this afternoon and throughout the week. Uh, What does he pray for the churches? And I believe it would be safe to infer that what he prayed for the other churches that we're about to look at They would reveal to us what was his focus, his concern, what motivated him. Because you're going to find in these prayers, there's a common theme. So that means Paul was probably always praying these things for all the churches. So what are they? I I find it interesting that they are overwhelmingly spiritual in nature rather than physical. 
we have a tendency to focus on the physical, the temporal needs of the body. I'm not condemning that. I think that's fine. But Paul doesn't say, hey, I heard about Aunt Ruth's stubbed toe, and I'm praying for it to be healed. What does he pray for these churches? And by the way, the churches that we're looking at, he would have known the people some of the people in these churches. So let's consider for just a moment Ephesians 1 to the church at Ephesus, the, probably one of the most prolific of the churches in the New Testament age outside of the church at Jerusalem. It had some great pastors. Paul was there for a while. Timothy was there for a while. The apostle John was there for a while. You talk about a church that was blessed. Of course, Jesus would later condemn the church as having what? Lost their first love. How does a church that has Paul and Timothy and John, the apostle, lose its first love? Walked away from the word. Anyway, what does Paul say about what is he praying he says, for this reason, what reason, Paul, in light of what Christ has accomplished for us, read the first 14 verses and you'll be amazed. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord, uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ, which exists among you, doesn't that sound like the Roman church, the faith which was being proclaimed? And of your love for all the saints, here it is, verse 16, do not cease, well, how does he begin? Giving thanks for you. He begins praising God for what God has done. That's exactly what we see in the book of Romans. While making mention of you in what? His prayers. Do you see the echo of what we've read in Romans? But what does he pray? He actually prays something for us here. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. What is that? I want you to know Christ inside and out. I don't want you to have some vague notion. I want you to have an intimate knowledge of Christ. Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Your very soul would be filled with the knowledge of Christ so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. Is that what you want to know? I need a Baptistic moment here and an amen. Do you want to know Christ so well you're overwhelmed by the power that that has in your life if you're the one who believes? He says these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. Is God working mightily in you? He's praying that that would continue in the life of these particular believers. The emphasis, though, is on what? The spiritual, not the temporal or the physical. What Paul desires for the church is they might know God, they might know Christ, they might experience every blessing that belongs to believers in Christ. That's a prayer that we ought to pray for the church. Not just that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's fantastic. But through that, we might experience every blessing that is ours. We have them. God has not withheld one blessing from us if we are in Christ. So why would we not want to experience them all? Paul prays for that. That is how we ought to pray. 
Paul's not done praying for the Ephesians, though. In Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 19, listen to what Paul prays there for the church. He says, for this reason, again, if you look in the previous verses, this is what God has accomplished for believers in Christ. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that you, now being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and the height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. I had a brother stand up here and read Psalm 88, and before he read Psalm 88, he made mention to us that it's a dark psalm. And that there's a time there where God seems hidden. And that his, he's had those experiences in his life that God seems hidden, he's veiled. Where are you, God? What's this prayer? May that not happen. May, may your life be so filled up with the knowledge of God and the love of Christ that you would know, I mean, Paul, how else can Paul say it? I want believers in every church to not just know a little bit about Christ. I want you to know the height and the depth and the width and the wonder and the super, superlative glory of the love that is ours because of Christ. That's not a physical prayer. He prays that for the inner man of every believer. What should we pray for the church? To know the wonders of God, the attributes of Christ. Well, let's look at another prayer that Paul makes. Again, just seeing all these similarities, he prays for the church at Philippi. In Philippians 1, verses 9 through 11, he says, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Do you begin to see a pattern in Paul's prayer? He mentions love. He mentions strength. He mentions understanding the power of God that is at work in you. He mentions the fruit of righteousness. What, is our, what are our lives demonstrating that the whole world may proclaim the faith that we have? Well, let's look at one last one here, and that's in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, this is to the church at Colossae there in Asia Minor. Verses 9 through 12, and Paul says, sounds familiar, for this reason also. What reason? Everything that he had just talked about, their participation in the gospel. Uh, for this reason also, since the day we've heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom, not earthly wisdom, not the latest fad that's being taught in Christendom, but true spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, 
bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. Oh, my word. What else would you pray? God, help us grasp who you are and what you've done in our lives. So much so that, it, well, I just have to give thanks to you because I'm going to be with all of these saints that you've redeemed in glory forever to give you praise. And I pray, Paul says, that you would begin to grasp that more and more. Paul's prayers, which flow out of his praise to God for God, what God was doing in the lives of those in the church, I believe he's praying these very similar things for the church at Rome. What made Paul tick was his desire to see believers grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord, to be filled with the understanding of his ways and purposes, to be equipped to truly live out the gospel in God's kingdom. That is how Paul confirmed his thanks or confirmed uh, his prayers for these believers. He prays. For them, and he says, God is my witness how I do this. And we just saw how he offered those prayers. But next we look at Paul's commitment. I didn't forget about that phrase. It says, For God, whom I serve in my spirit for the preaching of the gospel of his son. That interjection again comes after the statement, God is my witness, in the Greek text. But this is telling us something about Paul's service and commitment to who? Who is he committed to? And I would say there are two entities. He's committed to God, and if you had to get, render a guess, who else is he committed to? The church, the people of God. The verb served here, I would have you note this. The word, the God whom I serve, it is a very significant word to consider. We might think of the waitress that serves us when we go out to the restaurant. We might think of somebody serving us uh, by taking up our plates after a pot providence. But the word serve here is, in, is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, what we call the Septuagint, and it's used exclusively to speak of service rendered to a deity. It's not just any old service. It's service rendered unto God. It is the service of a priest that's offered up in the temple. In the New Testament, it always refers to service that is religious in nature. For example, it is used to describe the nature of Anna, the prophetess. As some of you may be reading in Luke chapter 2, as you consider the first advent of Christ, it says of Anna there that uh, she was a widow to the age of 84. And then it says this in verse 37 of Luke 2, she never left the temple serving, same verb, serving night and day with fasting and prayers. That's what this word means. When we are serving, we are serving God. We are intentionally blessing, praising God. As Paul speaks of him serving God, it reveals to his readers something then about his inner life. Again, what makes him tick? We see Paul use this very idea again in Acts chapter 24, verse 4. Let me read that for you. Paul says this, but this I admit to you. Isn't that an interesting phraseology? I got something to admit to you. 
When somebody says that to you, what do you, what do you think is coming next? Oh, now the, shoe, the other shoe's about to drop. Let's see what Paul says. But this I admit to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. What is he saying? I serve my God according to the word of God. Paul says, this is how I serve. For the God whom I serve, this is how I serve him. Here's Paul's heart. Here's his motivation. Here's what he refers to in this verse as his spirit. Namely, he worshiped the true and living God in or with reference. Then he goes on to say, what what is this God having me do? What is the main gist of my heart and ministry? It is the proclamation. He says the preaching is probably better translation. It is the proclamation of the gospel or the good news of his son. He's saying, my life has been so radically affected by Jesus Christ, I can't imagine serving any other God, any other purpose, any other person than the one who has saved my soul. I preach the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul placed, pla- Paul's place of priestly worship. I want you to get this idea. I hope I can paint the picture. Paul's saying, I, I serve as a priest. And my altar is, you ready for this? What is his altar? My altar is the gospel. I lay everything on the, gos- on the altar of the gospel. This is where I bring every prayer. This is where I bring every act of service. This is where I bring my heart. This is where I bring my heart aches. I bring it to the gospel. That is my altar. Paul didn't minister before some archaic altar in which he's trying to offer up some blood sacrifice that would never take away sins. That's been done, Paul will tell us later on in the book of Romans. The book of Hebrews will say it's done once and for all, but I still have an altar, and I am still a priest unto God, and I will bring every prayer, every request, every, everything I have to the altar of the gospel. Paul's altar of the gospel. Consider with me how the author of Hebrews exhorts this very same idea. In Hebrews 13, 15, we read, Through him, through who? Jesus Christ, then, let us continually offer up, as an act of service, offer up a sacrifice of, where does he begin? Praise to God. Well, what do you mean, author of Hebrews? What is a sacrifice of praise to God? That is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Isn't that right where Paul began? I give thanks to God for y'all. The gospel of Christ is to be our altar upon which we offer up praises. We offer up prayers to God. This is what shaped the life of Paul. This is what motivated him as a believer in all of his labors before the Lord. And beloved, this is to be our place of worship, the gospel. This is what should make us tick. This is to be our motivation. I can bring everything, every concern, every person I desire to see come to Christ. Everything is filtered through the gospel. And that's where Paul makes this comment. So then we see next then Paul's compliance. We've not only seen his confirmation and his commitment, 
to the gospel, but now his compliance. At the close of verse 10, Paul gives us a little bit of clue as to what he was praying for these believers, if you caught on to it. He prays, what is he praying? If perhaps, now at last by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. It's an interesting prayer, isn't it? It implies a lot of things, and he's actually going to tell us it's more than an implication right here. It certainly implies that he's been trying to get to see them for a while. You know what's on the heart of every genuine believer? A longing for fellowship with the saints. And it doesn't matter whether he's in northwest Arkansas and has a, a local church to go to, or if he were on a business trip and, and he's in a, another city in the United States or even in a foreign place, he has this desire Wherever I can be with the saints, that's where I want to be. I love how Paul, though, with this intentionally balances something that we can learn a lesson from. He balances his desire to visit these believers at Rome, something that he will admit he has not been able to do as of yet, with or in the sovereign will of God. What did Paul want to do more than anything else according to this verse? We'll read it again in verses 11 through 13. He wanted to see them. He's been prevented from seeing them. He, all he can think about and pray about is, Lord, let me see these people face to face. And he's been prevented over and over. We'll talk about that in just a moment. So what does he have to do? He has to consider that it's not God's will that he see them as of yet. And he's balancing this out for us. Paul was revealing then his compliance to a very biblical principle that we would all do well to implement. Proverbs 16:9 says this, you probably heard it. It says this, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. How many of you have planned your ways? How many of you have planned your ways and you've gone way away from where the Lord would have you be? Okay, we've been there. How many of you planned your ways and God just kind of like circumvents all of your plans and pushes you in a completely different direction and you end up doing something you never thought you would do before and you go, oh, wait a minute. This is, this is where God wanted me all along. You can plan your ways, but God directs the steps. And Paul seemed to understand this principle. He's planning all these things. He evidently planned many times to try to get to Rome and he'll tell us, Failed every time. Was that a bad thing that he failed? No, we'll say because he's been to a lot of different places. He started a lot of different churches. God was directing his steps. And so I would remind you that it's God who providentially brings all things whatsoever to come to pass in your life, not according to your will, not according to your whims, but according to his sovereign will. You may not understand it at the time. You may think this is a rotten place to be right now. But can I tell you something? When you find yourself in one of the most rotten places you could ever imagine yourself being, that's where you'll find God the most near and dear to you if you simply cry out to him. God allows things to come into our lives that seem to be so antithetical to God's blessing, and yet in the middle of those dark times, God brings to us some of his greatest blessings of all. I think Paul was planning to go to Rome as a free missionary. 
He was going to march triumphantly into Rome and be the preacher to the Gentiles and proclaim the gospel as a Roman citizen free to, to do all of that. How did he end up getting there? As a prisoner in chains. Imagine if this were me, my head might be down. This is not the way I imagined coming into Rome. You know, it seems Paul came into Rome. Hey, I'm here. I don't care if I'm chained to a guard. I'm going to preach the gospel to him. I'm going to just do what God told me to do, whether I'm in, a, in chains or I am a free man. I am not bound. I will proclaim the gospel. Paul had maybe had this plan that he would come in free, but God changed that plan. And when God changes the plans so often, we can't even begin to comprehend what it would have been like if we had followed in our own ways. Makes me consider the question, how is my prayer life? How is your prayer life? Does it reflect such a commitment and a compliance to pray? And to rest in the sovereignty of God. You could pray for days and days, weeks and weeks, months and months, years and years, and not see an answer to prayer for that what you've been praying for. And you have to come to what conclusion? That God doesn't hear you? No, God hears you. That according to God's sovereign purposes, it's a not yet, it's a not now. And it may not ever be, but that's okay. If it's on your heart, continue to pray for it. It would be some three or four years before Paul would ever make it to Rome as he's praying for it here. But Paul's prayer to get to Rome was a constant theme, and God did answer it. This is what motivated Paul. And it brings us to our third attribute of what should make a believer tick. The believer is to be a person of praise, we've noted, a person of prayer, we've noted, but also now a believer is to be a person with a plan, a person with a plan. Verses 11 through 13, for I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I, uh, I, have, I often have planned to come to see you and have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit from among you even as among the rest of the Gentiles. Our verse here begins with a little word, for. It indicates to us that Paul is about to explain why he has been praying the way that he's been praying. He's been praying according to the will of God to come to the Romans just as he expressed in verse 10. And then Paul says it again, I long to see you. That verb, to long, it means to earnestly desire. Have you ever had that where you just have something that I can't let go of this? I, I have to have that item. I have to see this person. I've got to make this connection. Paul earnestly desires and expresses this to be his ongoing plan. My plan is by the will of God, to get to you Romans. That's what he's saying. 
Now, I don't think Paul was saying, I'm going to get to Rome and then try to figure out what God would have me do there next. You ever done that too? I'm just going to get wherever and then I'll figure it out. Paul, Paul's plan is, I'm going to get there, and when I get there, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to share the gospel with you. I'm going to give you some blessings of spiritual fruit, and I expect that I'm going to be blessed by you as well. That's my plan. I love the determination. Well, let's look at that very specifically. What is the plan? He makes it clear. He says in verse 11, that I may impart... That verb means to, if we were to say it this way, that I may share or give or distribute to you some kind of spiritual gift. And in the Greek, it's the word charisma. I want to give you some gracious bestowal to the end, he says, or for the purpose of that you all individually and as a church may be what? established you may be made stronger that you would be grounded in the faith i love the desire this is the plan that verb established is in the passive voice i'm coming to you i'm going to impart a spiritual gift to you we'll talk about that in a moment i'm going to impart the spiritual gift to you and when i do god is going to use it to strengthen you You're not going to take it from me and say, now, how are we going to use this to make ourselves stronger? It's just that Paul's plan was, I know I have the gospel. I will share the gospel with you, and God will strengthen and establish and confirm you by that faithful act of communication. I love this. It takes all of the work out of it in the sense that I don't have to worry about The response, I just got to worry about what has God called me to do? I need to live the gospel. I need to proclaim the gospel. I love that this isn't something that would the believers would do for themselves. It would be something that God would do for them. The idea then of being established speaks of being made thoroughly or completely strong, stable in the faith. Paul had some concern that maybe these believers didn't have all the information they needed about the gospel so that they could maybe be taken captive by, by other philosophies and false teachings. And so he is, his plan is to preach the gospel. Well, let's, let's look not only at the plan, but what I call Paul's present. We're, we're almost at Christmas time. How, how many of you want presents? Okay, Here's Paul's Christmas present, as it were, to the Romans. What is the present? He speaks of a spiritual gift, a charisma. Contextually, it seems highly unlikely that Paul is speaking here to them. I'm coming to perform some miraculous spiritual sign or gift. I'm not coming to bring healings. I'm not coming to speak to you in tongues or to give prophecies. It's worth noting that the word gift here is in the singular. It's not saying I'm going to give you all sorts of different things. It says I have one thing to offer you. Now, Bear with me for just a moment, or put on your thinking caps. If you think about the book of Romans, what's the one thing that Paul has to give them? The gospel. 
He's not saying, I'm coming to give you all of these extraordinary signs. I'm coming, as this word charisma, in a very general sense, speaks of this. It speaks of overall spiritual benefit, a overall spiritual benefit. And Paul says that this would come as I give to you what I'm about to embark on in the rest of this letter, the instruction and the insight concerning the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you want to give a gift? Give the gospel. That's the best present you'll ever give anyone. And here's what that's what Paul is getting after. It may be rightly said that the teaching of this entire letter then to these believers at Rome is in fact the spiritual gift that he's speaking of that would establish the Romans and make them sound and solid as believers. So again, this term spiritual gift is being used in a very general sense to speak of of anything that builds up the spiritual life of people. And let me make this comment to you by way of application. I promise you this, on the authority of God's word, each and every one of you, if you claim Christ, you have insights and ability to encourage the other saints in the truth of the gospel. You experience God in your life in a way that I don't experience. I need to know that. I need to know that my God is bigger than just my problems. He helps you in your problems. He's bigger than just what I can discern from a a faithful reading and studying of Scripture. He's speaking to all of his people. He's teaching us his ways. Therefore, there's no reason to believe that Paul desires in this case to to come and offer to impart some miraculous sign but rather our text says more generally some spiritual gift that is insight into the gospel this would be paul's present to them and it brings us into paul's purpose notice then in verse 12 that paul continues to further explain and expand on this idea of imparting a spiritual gift to the benefit of believers He tells them that this purpose is that while he imparts further insight into the gospel, that he may also be what? Encouraged together with them. Do you know that if two believers get together, two or more believers get together, even the one that's maybe leading that particular meeting has every expectation to be blessed by the others? Isn't that what Paul's saying here? This is the great and eminent Apostle Paul. What could we ever do to encourage him? One show up. One listen. Next one listen. Third thing, interact. Engage with it all. See how it relates to your life and, and communicate that back in some particular fashion. Paul expected to be encouraged together with them or through by means of each other's faith or belief in the truth. That is the gospel. Both their faith in the gospel as well as his own. And beloved, here's the key. Here's the key. Paul says this is going to be best done. This is going to be most glorious. Not by me writing a letter to you. But when I see you face to face, it speaks of the tremendous need we have as believers to not gather just for general fellowship, which is fine, but to make the most of every opportunity to think in terms of how is what I'm 
hearing from the pulpit? How is what we're studying together from the word of God? What are the things that God has taught me through this week? How can I impart that to this other person so that they may be benefited? And in turn, I may be benefited. That phrase, encouraged together, is actually one word in the Greek text, and it carries the idea of being strengthened or comforted by those around us. Again, this is the benefit of our physical fellowship as believers. Our fellowship is to be about building one another up in the most holy faith. We are to be consumed with that idea. We are to encourage one another through our prayers, and we're to encourage one another through our praise, but we're to encourage one another through our insights gleaned from the word of God. That this is Paul's motivation in the heart, and his heart is affirmed to us by these words of Charles Spurgeon. I'm sorry for the long quote, but he said it better than I could. He said, Paul wanted his faith to establish theirs, and their faith to establish his. Christians grow rich by the exchange of spiritual commodities. I love that phrase, don't you? Every time you read the word, you're putting into your your spiritual wallet some more spiritual money, some commodity. And I'm afraid some Christians are very poor because they do not exchange in the spiritual bartering with one another. You know how it was in the old time. They that feared the Lord spake often to one another, Malachi 3.16. Shall I tell you how it is now? You want Spurgeon to tell you how it is now? In the 1800s? They that fear not the Lord speak often one against another. That is a very sad difference. Oh, for more Christian communion. For when we blend our mutual faith... We are comforted together. Each believer grows stronger as he cheers his brother in the Lord. Just process that. What made Paul tick was the mutual exchange of insights and experiences that flowed through their faithful obedience to the gospel of God. And Paul's plan was to see these believers face to face. And he was prepared to share what he had learned about the gospel. And he expects them to be prepared to share with him what they had learned about the gospel. That they might impart then this mutual benefit. In Romans 12, we see Paul kind of speak on the spiritual gift issue as he instructs believers to be individually ready now with their God-given gifts to impart a benefit for the well-being of believers. We read in Romans 12, verse 6, since we all have different gifts according to the grace given to us, Each one of us is to exercise them accordingly. You must, believers, be exercising them. And then he names some if prophecy, that is the foretelling or preaching of the truth, according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, or he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Whatever your gift is, use it. Mutually encourage the saints. If we are not exercising our God-given gifts of service, of helps, of mercy, of exhortation or teaching, beloved, we are guilty of quenching God's desire to establish and strengthen our church. May it never be. We, like Paul, are to be people who plan to impart insight and experience that we've gleaned from living out the gospel. And that brings us to this final point. We see Paul's 
patience, Paul's patience. As is actually kind of typical through Paul's letters, he'll start talking about stuff that they, he knows his readers have never heard of before. And whenever he does that, and you'll find this in, in many of his letters, he starts off with this phrase, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. And he literally means, I'm going to tell you something that you do not yet know. That's what he means. Paul's about to communicate something that they were unaware of, something which they, which they are ignorant of, and yet Paul says this is important for you to understand. As I said, this is something Paul does through many of his letters, but for now the question becomes, what is it that Paul wanted these Roman believers to know that they didn't? And he tells them, and this is what it is, pretty simple. Paul says, that often I have planned to come to you and have prevent, been prevented so far. So Paul was a man with a plan, but he couldn't get to the place where he could implement the plan. And maybe the Romans had thought, you know, hey, we've heard a lot about Paul, and maybe they had heard that Paul wanted to come and see them, but then a year passed, and then two years, and three years, and four years passed. And what might the church at Rome begin to think? Oh, maybe we're not all that important to Paul. And Paul says, you don't know this, but I've been prevented. All I want to do, I long to see you, but something has kept me from being able to come. Paul is the man with the plan, and part of that plan, which he's purposed beforehand, was to see them. But what is it that hindered or prevented him? And, man, there's a lot of different ideas out there. Some would suggest that it was per perhaps Satan that hindered him. We know that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul says that Satan actually hindered Paul from going to see the Thessalonians when he wanted to see them. So that is a possibility. Paul doesn't tell us. It may well be that simply he's being prevented from coming because of his pressing pastoral duties. He's been preaching in churches and he's been traveling. And it's not like you just jump on a plane and go to Rome and get things done overnight. He's been making his way to Rome and it's taken taken its time. But what I did find interesting as I was studying this uh, is that, that Paul says, all I've wanted to do is come to you. And then he starts launching into the gospel. And if you would note this, you could write this down in Romans 15, verses 22 and 23. He comes back to this idea and he says, for this reason I've longed to come to see you. And it's like this idea that all I want to do is see you face to face are the bookends for his presentation of the gospel. All I long to do is share the gospel with you. And then he shares the gospel. And then he ends the letter by saying, all I long to do is share the gospel with you. Is that what motivated Paul? Absolutely. Is that what motivates you? To share the gospel with others? We notice that Paul's enthusiasm to go to Rome was circumscribed by Paul by God's sovereign will. Though Paul was very eager to go to Rome and had even tried to do so on many occasions, he tells us he did not choose to subvert God's will. Wherever he went, he continued to do what? He preached the gospel. He keeps formulating the plan for the Romans, but he keeps preaching the gospel. Paul was submissive to the will of God. He was patient with God, not wanting to go and do something outside of the will of God, but be right where he is in that moment doing what God had called him to do. And it reminds me sometimes as we get together as believers, I can do it. I hear people do it. We talk about 
Well, when I get here, I'll do God's will. When I get to this circumstance, I'll do God's will. That's wrong thinking. You do God's will in this moment, right now. Don't worry about what God's will is. I mean, I say worry. We obviously want to plan for God's will, what we believe to be God's will. But don't be so future-minded that you are failing in the moment right now. Again, redeeming the time, making the most of every opportunity in the present because the days are evil. And I promise you, the days will be just as evil tomorrow. And they'll be just as evil the next day. So use this moment right now. Patience and submission to the will of God is the, an essential quality of faithful believers, and it ought to be what motivates us. But sadly, many of us must confess that patience and submission to the will of God are the two things that we are often most lacking in, right? How many of you just say, yes, I'm the most submissive person in the world, and I'm the most patient person in the world? And yet that's what we see in the life of Paul. We must learn that that uh, patience and submission uh, is, is a practice, a skill that is to distinguish for us the will of God from our own. Sometimes God makes us wait because, well, we are being subversive to God's will. Sometimes we're not being patient, and so God just says, cease your striving, and then you'll know who's God. And you're not. Loose paraphrase of Psalm 46. But We must recognize when our ideas for a particular ministry or desire are part of God's plan and when they are simply our own. They may be good ideas. Sometimes they're bad ideas. Sometimes God clearly shows us what he wants us to do. And then we turn around the next time we're like, God, what do you want me to do? There's no clear path here. Sometimes we wrongly assume that what we want to do next is God's sovereign plan. And the goal, beloved, is to make sure that to the very best of our ability, we can align whatever our desires are with the will of God. We must discover his will and bring our own life into conformity with that. And, um, man, I, I just keep preaching, don't I? Let me just wrap this up here for us. He speaks to us of this desire at the end of verse 13 of, of wanting to obtain some fruit. Again, there's a desire on the part of the Apostle Paul. He wants to go and, and impart something to them, but he wants some fruit. And that signifies a spiritual fruit. It could be the idea of fruit, the fruit of the Spirit of, spoken of in Galatians 5, uh, 22 and 23, but I think it's being used in a more general sense to refer to when we get together and I show you what God's been doing in my life and how he's sanctifying me and making me more like Christ, and I see how God is sanctifying you and making you more like Christ, we're going to be exchanging fruit. We're going to be seeing how one another's lives have been encouraged. Beloved, this is what made Paul tick. This is what motivated Paul day to day. This is what encouraged him in his walk with Christ. He was a man of constant thanksgiving and praise to God for all that God had done on behalf of other believers for their spiritual growth and for their resolve in the faith. And he was a man with a plan, a plan according to what God had revealed to him, and yet also a plan that was subject to the will of God. 
And I just ask you, do these attributes describe you at all or in part this morning? If not, why not? Perhaps it means that you have not actually come to know Christ if none of these things are true. Perhaps you need to begin by rehearsing the basics of the gospel, starting with Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom you are the foremost of all, and that Christ is indeed a great, sinner, a, a great savior for sinners. It would begin by just saying, Lord, save me, the sinner. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe and remember what Christ has done for you. And, and I would encourage you, come and talk to me or an elder or anyone that's come here that you believe is a faithful uh, Christian. Get that resolved. I suspect that there are many of us who would say that these three attributes of praise, prayer, and having a plan at least sort of describes us to some degree or another. You would probably agree, yeah, I'm strong in some of these, but I'm weak over in this area. What would I have you do today? Would you pray about it? Pray that God would grant you the grace to excel still more in these biblical motivations to the glory of God and the building up of Christ's church. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the truths contained in these verses. And I pray that you would speak to each of our hearts concerning how we might imitate these very qualities. Lord, all of us can do better, excel still more at being people of praise, people of prayer, and people that plan according to your purposes and will. May that be our desire. May it be that which motivates us. May it be that which you use to bless our lives as we seek to be a blessing to others in the proclamation of the gospel. We ask and pray in Jesus' name.